0: You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Hello, this is Dr. Penny Chris Hetherton, president of the National Lipid Association. I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Alan Brown and presented by the National Lipid Association. Hi, this is Dr. Alan Brown, host of Lipid Luminations. Today, our topic on Lipid Luminations is exercise and cholesterol. I'm actually very excited to have our guest, Dr. Harold Bays, who's the medical director and president of Louisville Metabolic and Atherosclerosis Research Center, which is located, as you might guess, in Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. Bays, thank you very much for joining us today, and welcome to Lipid Luminations. Well, thank you for having me. So I know that your background includes principal investigator in many clinical trials, and that you have a particular interest in the properties of obesity, and adipose tissue, and you've even coined a term that you call adiposopathy or sick fat, and I found that really fascinating. Can you talk to us a little bit about the properties of particularly visceral fat and your term adiposopathy?
1: As I think we all know, those of us in clinical practice and those of us that actually see patients, it is quite common that once a patient gains weight, they don't just have orthopedic problems or you know skin problems and such is just commonly the case that they will develop metabolic diseases such as diabetes mellitus and, and high blood pressure and dyslipidemia. I mean these are things that we see every day. And the contrary is also true that overweight patients who have these metabolic diseases, if they if they lose weight, then these metabolic diseases often get better. Now, in the past people used to think of fat cells or adipose tissue as simply, you know, inert, that they really didn't do much. But over you know, the past decade, we've really come to understand that fat and adipose tissue and fat cells are very, very active from an endocrine standpoint and from an inflammatory standpoint. And so I think it is critical to understand that when you have patients that have an increase in fat cell size or an increase in fat mass, adipose tissue mass, that these patients are susceptible to dysfunction of their fat cells and dysfunction of their adipose tissue which contributes to these metabolic diseases that we all know so well,
0: so is there a difference where the fat's located in terms of whether it's around the the muscles and the arms or whether it's around the abdomen and, and tell us a little bit about uh, if there is a difference, what are the metabolic activities of these fat cells?
1: Yes, I think that's an excellent point. I think there's kind of a a misconception about this, and maybe it's because I have a different perception that actually you know may or may not be correct, but the way I look at it is we have this fat in peripheral sites, okay, in the you know, around the buttocks region and the legs and the arms, as you just correctly mentioned. And if those adipose tissue depots are functioning well, and if they're able to replicate, in other words, if you have unimpaired or unfettered or unencumbered adipogenesis, in other words, creation of new fat cells in the, in the peripheral regions, then that's where your excess calories are going to go. That's where the excess energy is going to be deposited. However, if there is impairment of your peripheral adipose tissue in that it doesn't replicate, then what happens is these fat cells in the periphery become enlarged. And furthermore, the fat must be or the energy must be stored elsewhere. So then what you get is an increase in the collection of fat in the visceral or in the waist region And you may also end up with increase in adipose tissue around body organs, such as the heart and vasculature. And so the end result is that because visceral fat is very different with regard to metabolic activity and endocrine responses, then you have all these factors that are released that go to the liver and muscle and such that cause insulin resistance. And as I mentioned before, many other different types of factors that contribute to high blood pressure and dyslipidemia. And what might be equally as important is when you get an increase in fat tissue around like heart and blood vessels, there could be this phenomenon we call outside-to-inside immune responses, where in actuality, it is the increase in the collection of adipose tissue surrounding body organs and surrounding the vasculature that may be contributing to atherosclerosis. And this would be as opposed to the traditional mechanism that we all know well, you know, atherosclerosis is simply an inside-to-inside phenomenon where you have these LDL particles swimming around the blood and they go through the endothelium and then they cause an inflammatory reaction and then you get the atheroma. What I'm saying is that there's another school of thought that in addition to that, that there's a contribution from the fat that surrounds blood vessels and, and fat that surrounds the heart wherein these inflammatory and other factors that are released from inflamed or or dysfunctional adipose tissue can actually contribute to atherosclerosis.
0: Let me ask you, taking that a step further, we always talk about the male versus the female pattern of obesity, where females have a little more below the waist and in the legs and thighs, and men traditionally have more around their abdomen. But obviously, we see men with the female pattern, and we see females with the male pattern. Is there a genetic predisposition beyond just the traditional metabolic syndrome type inheritance that we could point to about the type of fat? And does that have something to do with why some people don't replicate their fat cells in the areas around their skeletal muscles?
1: I think that's exactly right. I think that there are both genetic influences, but there are also specific predispositions that occur depending upon whether you have a predominance of estrogens or predominance of testosterone. So, in other words, men and women do react very differently when it comes to how it is that they deposit fat. Having said this, I think your point is, is exactly spot on, uh, that we do have men who do collect fat in the gynoid distribution, but we have a lot of women that collect it also in the abdominal region as well. So, what are the implications? The implications are that if your fat cells become dysfunctional, your adipose tissue becomes dysfunctional, if it becomes sick, then what is commonly found is that in men, estrogen levels may rise, testosterone levels certainly will decrease. On the flip side, with women, what will happen is they'll have an increase in androgens, which is a contributing reason as to why you see you know, women who have the polycystic ovarian syndrome, where they have an the increase in facial hair and and irregular menses and these sorts of things. So you end up kind of like an approximate, you know, like almost like a approximation of the genders. They tend to kind of go more towards each other. With men getting you know, maybe a relative increase in estrogen relative to testosterone, while women, on the other hand, have an increase in testosterone relative to estrogen. So I think you're exactly right. There's a great crossover between men and women. But having said that, it is certainly true that as early as the 1940s, it was described that men more often collect excessive body fat within the visceral region, which is uh, at least a contributing reason as to why men tend to have their atherosclerotic cardiovascular event, their myocardial infarction, their heart attack, you know, 10 years earlier on average than often occurs with women.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Lip Illuminations on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown, and joining me to discuss exercise and cholesterol, as well as uh, adiposopathy, is our guest, Dr. Harold Bays, who's medical director and president of Louisville Metabolic and Atherosclerosis Research. The center that is located in Louisville, Kentucky. Harold, can you talk to us for a couple minutes about once you do establish the fact that someone has this dangerous fat around their abdomen, what are the best strategies to lose it? And tell me a little bit about the role of calorie restriction versus exercise or both.
1: I think what is critical for patients to understand is the best way in which you are going to achieve weight reduction and the best way in which you are going to improve metabolic disease is is probably going to be through appropriate nutrition. What is the most appropriate nutrition? I think that does somewhat depend upon exactly you know what your glucose your blood sugars are, or, you know what your cholesterol is and which types are elevated and which are not. But overall, I think what we can say is that consuming less calories than you burn off is the key towards essential weight reduction. I know a lot of people don't want to hear that. You know, what they think is, is that if a person's overweight, it's because they have low metabolism. Well, in fact, if you increase body fat because fat requires calories, in fact, people who are overweight have an increase in your resting metabolic rate or your metabolism compared to somebody who's not overweight. So that's a, a common misconception. What you must do in order to achieve weight loss is you must reduce a caloric intake. Now, having said that, Exercise is certainly a component towards a successful weight loss plan, and why is that? Number one, it does contribute to burning off more calories, so that is certainly true. What also is important is that there there may be, and we're just coming to understand this, there may be reasons, mechanisms, as to why having an exercise program, a physical exercise program, in conjunction with an appropriate diet may help with persistence of weight loss it may help with the various things that go on within the brain that combat weight loss and as i think you know and i think most of your listeners are going to know when you start to lose weight when your patients start to lose weight it becomes very difficult to keep that weight off that's where exercise i think is particularly valuable it helps keep the weight off
0: Yeah, that's a very important point, I think. It's funny how when people go on a diet, they restrict calories, they start to lose weight, that suddenly food starts to smell better, and uh, you know all the different things that the brain does to try to trick you into maintaining whatever your steady state weight was. But it is true, I think, uh, as you know, that when you look at studies of people who've kept their weight off after losing it, they seem to exercise and eat breakfast every day, right? Aren't those the two major predictors of maintaining your weight?
1: That is absolutely true. The consumption of multiple smaller meals throughout the day, I think, has been recommended you know, by many folks over a period of years. But with specific regard to exercise, again, I think that there's something inherently about an increase in physical exercise, whether it be the dynamic or aerobic exercise, or whether it be the resistance or the weightlifting exercise, that does something to the brain, does something to the mind, does something neurophysiologically that combats this counter-regulatory process that says if you have negative caloric balance or if you're losing weight, we're going to do everything conceivably possible to make you fail. That's what the mind's going to do. It says we don't want you to be losing weight. So I think, again, that's where exercise, I think, really kicks in.
0: Well, you touched on something that I'm sure the listeners are going to be interested in. Does it matter whether you do dynamic or aerobic exercise Versus weightlifting, or should you do some combination? What do you recommend? I get that question all the time, you know, which is best. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: I likewise get that question. And here is my uh, standard response. The best exercise for a patient to do is whatever they will do. And whatever they will do on a routine basis. So if they are going to walk around the block routinely, walking is by far the best exercise. If they'll go swimming, that's best. If they happen to have a a gym at work or, you know, exercise equipment at work and they're willing to do that, that's the best. So to me, the first step towards a successful and routine exercise program is whatever the patient will do. Okay, now over and above that, I think your question is an essential one. You know, what is the totality of the evidence as to which of these different types of exercises are best towards weight reduction? and, you know, this is my opinion, but it's based upon, you know, multiple studies and such, I think it is probably the aerobic or the dynamic exercises that are most consistently associated with the weight reduction. And I think there's reasons for that. One, it's going to end up most often burning off more calories. Another reason is because there is this misconception about resistance exercises wherein you'll read on the Internet things like every pound of muscle that you gain burns an extra 50 calories per day. You read that everywhere with the implication, you know, if you gain 10 pounds of muscle, then your resting energy expenditure would increase about 500 kilocalories per day. So just by sitting around the room, you're burning off all these extra calories. and That sounds fabulous. But the problem is when you actually look at the data, that's really not true. Okay. it actually ends up, much, much less than that, and it varies from study to study, but you're certainly not going to get the kind of calories burned off from gaining muscle mass that you often read about on the Internet. But having said that, I'm actually a big advocate towards resistance or weightlifting because I think it helps from an orthopedic standpoint, it helps from an endurance standpoint, and if nothing else, it just adds variety to your exercise program, which means you may you know, do it for a longer period of time.
0: I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Harold Bayes, Medical Director and President of Louisville Metabolic and Atherosclerosis Research Center located in Louisville, Kentucky. Harold, thank you very much for being our guest on Lipid Illuminations and for a fascinating discussion of adiposopathy. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, visit www.lipid.org.